We are in a series appropriately in the midst of the cultural reality we find ourselves in on forgiveness, on learning to be people of grace as we interact with the world around us. And this is what we call at York Alliance a practice series. And so uh, the rhythm of the way that we teach at York Alliance is the majority of the time we're teaching either through a book of the Bible or through a topic out of specific scriptures in the Bible. And then we interrupt those times to come out of the word specifically towards the practices of Jesus. And we pair those with what we call practice guidebooks. And so there's a couple of them still right over at the table. As you come in and out of the main door over there, you are welcome to grab one of those. They're also online. The goal of these series is not primarily to teach, although you'll get some teaching along the way, but it's primarily to act, to practice, to step into the rhythm of the life of Jesus. And one of the parts of that rhythm within the life of Jesus is that he was forgiving. He forgave others and he invites us to be forgiving people. And so that's the journey that we're on. I want to say as we go into it, I know for some of you this is a weighty, difficult subject. And so it's important to say that up front. These are not easy things. I will try to use a variety of illustrations from the light to the heavy because we need to be forgiving people, not just in those big, massive things, but in the little things within our lives. But forgiveness can be very tricky and can be very difficult. And so as we walk through it, my goal is not to take it lightly, but to take it appropriately as seriously as Jesus did. And so that's the journey we're on. Um, Brian Wade was preaching last week, did a great job. So, so thankful for him uh, as he taught us. Um, I was uh, with uh, Ethan and a few others uh, from this community down in Virginia at a regional speech and debate competition. So uh, you may or may not know I coach a, a speech and debate team and this was the regional championships, so uh, students from four or five different states were together competing. Um, and it was well into the tournament. The tournament lasted from Thursday to Saturday late, and so maybe it, was, maybe it was Friday night, maybe it was Saturday lunch, I don't remember. At some point, we were sitting around the meal table, and there's a conversation with a couple of the kids on our team that I was in the middle of as well. And there were a few other people there, including a, a lady who coaches a team in Northern Maryland that we've known for several years. We're just having a conversation. And the kids, our kids on our team, are talking about competing because they love to compete and they love to win. And so they were talking about their strategies of how they were going to compete and what they were going to do. And it was fun and it was lighthearted as they talked about all these different things. And the conversation died down and the laughter died down. And this coach from this other team looked over at me and she said, so that's what you're teaching them at your club. And I said, what? She said, well, I mean we would teach them to love others, not just to have competition. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? <laughs> what are we talking about here? And, and so there's this moment, right, where like everything just comes up in me where I was like, I, I wanted to like, I don't, should I strangle her? Should I defend myself? Should I like, I don't, I don't know what to do right now. I don't even like, I just glare. Like, I don't, what do I, how do I handle that, right? Those things, they happen like 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 times a day, right? And most of them just glance off of us. This one stuck with me a bit, as you can tell. Um, every time I saw her the rest of the tournament, I was like, I hope we beat you. I hope we beat you bad. And that was not godly. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that's what I felt, right? I, like, it, there's this thing that kind of stuck. Um, and, and the only answer to that situation is forgiveness, not even because she thinks she did anything wrong. She was stating what's probably obvious to all of you. But to me, it landed in a way 
that requires me to forgive. Brian ended his message last week by talking about two women, both of whom had their sons murdered, one by gunshot, one by stabbing, and how they forgave. So on one end, you have an offhanded comment at a dinner table. And on the other hand, you literally have the murder of your son. Both require forgiveness. How do you do it? How do you want to do it? I think that's a difficult question, right? Because I, I think of that lady and I think I, if I try to put myself in that mom's position, I would want to be saying, I hurt so bad, I want you to hurt like that. When we're hurt, when we're sinned against, there's this natural response that rises up in us that says, I want you to feel like I feel. How do we get to a place where we can move from that to forgiveness? That's what I want us to try to encounter today as we dig into the word and as we try to walk through a process. And so I want us to look, first of all, at the primacy of forgiveness, how central forgiveness is to the gospel. And then I want us to look at the power of forgiveness. Why is it such a big deal? Why did Jesus make it such a big deal? And then ultimately the path to forgiveness. How do we get there? How how do we start a process that allows us to be not just forgiving in a circumstance, but to be forgiving people? So the primacy of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness, and the path to forgiveness. So would you pray with me? And let's invite Jesus to speak to us. Lord, as we declared there is nothing better than you. We come in, in reverence, in awe, in worship, in recognition that you are good and you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration, that we should follow you and we desire to follow you. And yet this is a hard path that you have invited us down. For some of us, it feels like an impossible path. And so, Jesus, would you, in your grace, speak to us, meet us, and touch our hearts, and lead us towards the place of life. I pray that my words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but that your words that come from your spirit would remain and that they would stick with us. I, I pray, as I have prayed all week, that our, our hearts would be fertile soil for the seed of your word. It's so easy with a, with a topic like forgiveness to have hearts that are hardened and not able to receive the seed of your word. So God, would you plant your word deep in our hearts and may it grow up and bear much fruit. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 6 finds us right in the center of this extended teaching in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, Jesus, as he teaches on prayer, invites us to pray. Rather than me reading, I would like for us all to read together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It will be on the screen before you. Would you read with me? In a minute. There we go. Oh, maybe not. Well, I think you know it. So let's, uh, let's work with it. Not sure what happened there, but uh, we'll, we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus continues in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is Jesus' teaching. A couple things that become immediately evident to us. Jesus taught his disciples this prayer, not just as a framework for praying, but as a prayer that would be repeated throughout the millennia. This is a prayer that that believers in Jesus have prayed together and individually, daily, multiple times throughout the day on a regular basis. They've recited together this prayer. And so one of the things that's readily apparent is that Jesus expected us to need to be forgiving one another and be forgiven. He, he knew that we would sin against each other. He knew that part of humanity is that we are going to offend one another. You're going to offend me and I'm going to offend you. That's just part of life, this side of heaven. And so forgiving wasn't just a one-time thing or a, a, a doctrine that was taught at some point in time. It was a regular part of the fabric of what it means to live in the kingdom, that we would receive the forgiveness of God and we would give the forgiveness of God. That's the first thing. The second thing we see is that forgiveness is available in the kingdom. This is not a far off idea that we might hopefully at some point in time attain to. It's a regular part of what's offered to us. Forgiveness is readily available for all who are open to receive it. Forgiveness is not something that you have to work to gain. It's something that is freely given to you. And yet the third thing When you read this text, it appears that forgiveness is contingent. Did you see that? If you forgive other people, then I'll forgive you. Anybody uncomfortable with that? Because the gospel that I have declared for years and years and years says that grace is a free gift and is not contingent. So what's going on? Jesus just said, and if you'd like to read it in Greek, if you would like to parse the language, if you would like to dive into every commentary you can find, what Jesus literally said is, if you don't forgive other people, you're not going to be forgiven either. So what's going on? Well, it's important to remember, this is in the middle and then at the end of the prayer where Jesus first said to his disciples, when you pray... Come into the presence of an almighty God and call him daddy. So remember that the first move of grace was God's move to start with. He invited us into his presence. The parable we looked at last week is a great illustration. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, Brian walked us through the parable of the king who forgave this massive sum, hundreds of millions of dollars of debt to the first servant who then went out and the second servant who owed him a little bit was not forgiven. And then that first servant was brought back into the king and that forgiveness was revoked. It's a great picture of what happens because the the king has given this massive amount of forgiveness, but when that forgiveness doesn't pass through, that forgiveness is changed. So now when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, There's this sense that Jesus is showing us what that looks like. Uh, Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on the, the prayer, says this. It has understandably troubled the church that this apparent condition of human forgiveness is attached to the reception of divine forgiveness. But a prior massive forgiveness precedes and makes possible believers praying the Lord's Prayer. 
The Father's forgiveness mediated to us here through his Son makes it possible to pray the Lord's Prayer at all. Okay, so that's theologian speak, but what he just said is this. The, the big first forgiveness is that you've been invited into the presence of God. That's the massive hundreds of millions of dollars of debt that you have been forgiven. Now, as we come into the presence of God, there's an expectation from God that that forgiveness would take root in our hearts in such a way that we would pass it on to other people. And so that invitation, the Our Father invitation, is the first act of grace, forgiveness that precedes the forgiveness that we offer that precedes and begins the cycle of forgiveness. Bruner actually said uh, a little bit later in his commentary, if the gospel was to be summarized in a single word, that word would be forgiveness. Forgiveness is absolutely central to the gospel. Okay, so it's center, it's primary, there's, there's primacy to forgiveness, but it still requires movement, right? We still have to do something. We have to receive that forgiveness and then offer that forgiveness to others. Jesus is teaching us that there should be a motivation that his move creates. He moves first. He's the first mover, but he creates a move that should flow through to us. I I love this image that the Catholic theologian Gaetano Piccolo, which is a great Italian name, by the way, uh, Gaetano Piccolo, he, he talks about oxygen as a metaphor for forgiveness. He says that we are to breathe in the oxygen of God's forgiveness and to breathe out forgiveness to others. So I want you to do an exercise with me, okay? So I want you to fully breathe in the forgiveness of God, okay? Just breathe in the forgiveness of God. Now hold that forgiveness in. Now imagine if I'm walking in front of you and you're saying, I am not breathing on you. I don't care what you say. I'm not giving you the the privilege of me breathing on you. I am not, I'm just, I'm going to hold. And if I just stand in front of you for a while, so I'm just hanging out in front of Tiffany and she's just holding, she's like turning, oh, I'm sorry. You can breathe out, girl. It's fine. It's fine. So if, if I'm standing in front of you, you're holding that breath in, like who's that hurting? Me? No, like you're going to pass out. (laughs) It's not me. We're designed to breathe in rhythm, to breathe in and breathe back. If you didn't start breathing again, please start breathing in. (laughs) We're designed to breathe in rhythm. That's the way our bodies are created. Piccolo says this, forgiveness is not only an obligation. It is the only way we have to be fully alive. So follow his reasoning. It's not just that we're obliged to forgive because God's forgiven us. It's that actually, if we are not forgiving others, we're missing the flow of the way that we've been created. If I am afraid to breathe in deeply or breathe out deeply, I can't get more oxygen in. I may sustain life, but I'm not going to thrive. My vitality will be compromised in the process. Same thing is true of forgiveness. It's not so much that you wouldn't be able to continue to survive in the kingdom of God, but you will never thrive in the kingdom of God apart from being able to forgive other people. Lewis Smedes, in his book on forgiveness, talks about unforgiveness as a nettle that we get stuck in. And he says this, It's not as though forgiving were the remedy of choice among other options which are less effective and still useful. It is the only remedy. 
Forgiveness is the only way out of the cycle that we're in. So just imagine, Jeff is really rude to me in some way. He's sinned against me in some awful way. Why would you do that, man? Come on, I thought we were friends. Terrible, unbelievable. So just imagine, Jeff has committed this awful sin against me. Now, the only way out of that situation is the process of forgiveness. If I don't offer forgiveness to Jeff, there is no way to break the cycle. Like, if my response to Jeff is, oh man, he's there, I'm going to go over this way. Like, every time I see him, I'm just going to avoid him. Like, oh, he's at the 1030, you know what, I'll just let somebody else preach at 1030. I'm just not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stay away. I see him in the grocery store, turn the other way. None of you have ever done this before. I'm just a, a hypothetical. Right? Like, like it, it, it never gets resolved, right? There's never a point in time where it just disappears. It's only through forgiveness that we solve the issue. And Jesus goes a step further to say, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. There's this uh, sense in which Jesus has tied together our forgiveness of other people to our relationship with him. He basically says, if you stop forgiving other people, it's going to stunt your spiritual growth. You're going to stop growing. I don't know the percentages. There would be no way to survey it. But I deeply believe there is a large percentage of the American church that through deep levels of unforgiveness of individual people and of groups of people, we've just stopped growing. We've just been stunted. But see, the opposite is also true. If we are forgiving people who are willing to enter into a process of forgiveness, the opposite becomes true and we begin to thrive in our relationship with Jesus. So that's all great at a theory level. It's, uh, there's, there's power in forgiveness, but that doesn't make it easy. And some of the situations that you're dealing with are heavy, weighty things that you don't just say, all right, I'll just forgive, no big deal. I'll forget that, never mind. They're heavy things. They're real, weighty situations. So what do you do? What do you do when you don't want to forgive? What do you do when you don't, can't generate that emotion of forgiveness? What do you do? Well, I want to walk you through a path to forgiveness. This is not uh, specifically biblical, although I think all of the points are biblical. We could kind of walk through and proof text all of them if you wanted to do that. It's designed by a, a, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Everett, Everett Worthington. He's a, a psychology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's also a practicing psychiatrist, but uh, more importantly than either of those things, he's a follower of Jesus who has spent decades seeking to help the church understand what forgiveness looks like from a biblical perspective. And he's designed a model that he uh, uses the acronym REACH. And he puts it in the shape of a pyramid, talking about uh, uh, climbing the pyramid to reach forgiveness, going through this process uh, that is pyramid-shaped to reach forgiveness. And so I, I want us to walk through the process of these five things. I want to say at the outset, um, this is not a quick five-step process that you'll be able to complete by the time you leave here and be good. Um, for, for the comment made at the dinner table, maybe. That's no big deal. Um, but for some of the weighty things that you're dealing with, it's going to take time. It may take days, weeks, months, years to work through this process. But we need a pathway. And I'm not saying this is the only one, but this is the best one that I found, and I think it is a helpful one. So you begin by recalling the hurt, move to empathy. You go into giving the altruistic gift of forgiveness. You commit publicly to forgive 
and then ultimately hold on to forgiveness. So we're going to walk through each one of those and try to uh, unpack what that looks like. So begin by recalling the hurt. This is vitally important because for most of us, we don't want to sit in the emotion that we feel by the pain that we've received. Makes sense. We want to avoid that pain. But in order to truly forgive, we have to truly acknowledge the hurt. The, the process of forgiveness requires us to be honest. Lewis Smedes in his book says this, we eye the evil face to face and we call it what it is. Only realists can be forgivers. Only realists can be forgivers. I think that's such a good reminder to us that we need to be honest. If we're going to really forgive people, we need to be honest about the hurt that they've caused us. So that process of, uh, of recalling the hurt could be a really significant hurt. It could be the murder of a son. Or it could be a really small hurt. It could be an offhanded comment made at the dinner table. Either way, we have to be willing to recall the hurt. And this is true whether it's a real or perceived offense. Uh, stick with me for a minute. Sometimes we're hurt and need to forgive things that aren't actually real. So I remember uh, back in college, this will be shocking to you, uh, back in college I would sit in the back row of my classes and I would often have conversations with other people while the professor was talking. I know, I know, it's hard for you to imagine, but just try to, try to get your head around it. Um, and so one day I was talking uh, the, the professor was rudely trying to teach over me. I don't know what was going on there. And the professor stopped and like yelled at me for talking to somebody beside me. So my immediate reaction, I had two things that went through my head at the same time. The first one, <laughs> this is such like 19-year-old arrogance. I'm, it's, I'm not proud of it. But my first thought was, I'm paying for this class. I can talk if I want to talk. That's the first thing I thought. <laughs> so true. I'm so sorry. That's not, that's not good. But that's what I thought. That was the first thing. And the second thing I thought was, why are you calling me out in the middle of class? Like, talk to me afterwards. You're gonna, like, that's embarrassing. Like, what are you doing? Now, is that a real offense? No, that professor has every right to control the classroom and every right to tell me to shut my mouth. But there was this perceived offense, right? I felt offended, even though it wasn't real. Like, that's not actually true, but it doesn't matter. I felt that. And so the process is still forgiveness. That's especially true as it relates to God. People will often come to me and say, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I need to forgive God. Now, did God sin against you? No, of course not. God's perfect and he never sins. And yet, what do you do when you come before God and in recalling the hurt, you're saying, like, you could have stopped this and you didn't. You could have changed this and you didn't. You allowed this thing to happen. As we come before God, it is honest and pleasing to him for us to honestly recall the hurt before him. He's not bothered by that. In fact, he invites it. And he can handle it. So we should come and be honest before him. He's quite literally a big boy. He can deal with it. And so we come and recall the hurt. We bring it up in as, in as much honesty and uh, emotion as we can. So sometimes that's through journaling. Sometimes that's through discussion with a close friend, a counselor, just processing, bringing that hurt out. After we recall the hurt, the next step is to empathize. And this is tricky because specifically when someone has sinned against us, there's this resistance to give them any grace at all. There's a, a deep desire to not sit in their shoes. 
But we have to if we're going to get to the place of moving towards forgiveness. Dr. Les Greenberg uh, is a psychologist who has uh, put together this practice called the empty chair practice. Uh, basically what it, what it is is uh, sitting across from an empty chair and having a conversation with this person who's hurt you. So let me tell you a real story of uh, Dr. Greenberg's that comes out of that practice. There's a guy who's about 30 years old who comes to Dr. Greenberg's practice. His mom uh, committed suicide when, when he was 10 years old. He was left with his dad who emotionally disconnected and who effectively left him alone through his teen years, through his 20s. His dad died when he was 29, and now he shows up in Dr. Greenberg's office at 30, and he's emotionally a wreck. He has nowhere to go. He feels bound up. And so he sits him across from an empty chair, and he says, if your dad was in that chair right now, what would you say to him? And so the guy starts to process, and he says, Dad, I... It's not that you weren't there. It's that you weren't there for me. Your body was there, but your mind wasn't there. That's the way you always were. You were cold. You were detached. It seemed like I was a nuisance to you. I was an obligation. It felt like you resented me. After he had said that to his dad, Dr. Greenberg said, okay, now I want you to stand up and go over and sit in that chair and imagine how your dad might respond to you. And so the guy moved over and he sat down. He thought for a minute. He said, I think he would say, son, I'm so, so sorry. I had no idea you were so hurt. I had no idea you were so alone. I was so hurt by your mom's death. I was struggling to cope and I had nothing to give you. I wanted to be a real father to you, but I didn't want to add more hurts to you. I didn't have what it took to give you what you needed. There's no excuse. I'm so sorry. And as the son spoke those words, imagination words, words that may or may not have been the words that his father would have spoken to him, he began to be able to step into the process of forgiveness. Empathy, as difficult as it is, is required for us to be able to forgive because it begins to put us in the position where we can understand not a justification for, but a reason behind the sin that's been committed against us. We would love to make everyone else out to be monsters and us to be squeaky clean, perfect little people. That would, that would work so much better. But it's just not true. Part of the practice that we walked through last week was to recall very specifically times that you were forgiven of something that you had committed against someone else. And the reason we do that is because in that process of, of remembering forgiveness that's been offered to us, a humility is generated so that we can begin to offer forgiveness in humility, not in superiority. It's in empathy that we're able to start to feel what that other person is, is feeling towards us. You know, I think about Patty across the dinner table for me, and I mean, if you know me just a little bit, she's probably quite justified in what she was saying, right? Like, she probably is right to correct the way that I'm handling some of the instruction. There's probably a bit of a competitive edge to me that's probably not ideal, right? And so I can put myself in her position and say, like, yeah, I see where she's coming from. I mean, I want to put myself in her position and say, yeah, it's because we're beating you too bad, right? That's what I, that's what I want to say. But I, 
I feel that process, not justifying what she said, but I feel that process of saying, I see where that came from. That, that makes sense. And the part of that that is true and good and godly, I can receive that. that that's an important process for me to walk through. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the recipient of so much offense against him, made this statement about forgiveness. We must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. It's as simple as just the recognition we're human. And when we understand that we're all human, we're not excusing the offense that's been committed against us, we're just simply recognizing that we are broken people who are journeying together. We empathize. Next, we offer the altruistic gift of forgiveness. That may be different language for you. Altruism is effectively just simply wanting the best for someone else and acting for their concern, not your own concern. You're, you're caring for them. Uh, we often, and it's true, talk about forgiveness as something that we need, that benefits us. And, and that's absolutely true. But let's go back to poor Jeff, who has made this awful offense against me. You know, he's really, really nasty to me. Uh, in, in, the, in the midst of that offense, once he recognizes it, or even if he doesn't recognize it, as I recognize it, there's this separation in our relationship. The only way out of that is the gift that only I can offer. I need to forgive him if that relationship is going to be restored. And I'm the only one who can do that. That gift of forgiveness needs to come, yes, for my sake, but also for his sake, for our sake. That doesn't mean, depending on the offense, that the relationship is restored and reconciled. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. That doesn't mean that things go back to normal, but it does mean that that gift of forgiveness offered to the other person is the only way that the relational cycle can continue on and that relationship that both of us have with God can continue, continue forward. The problem that we run into is that we want justice. Somebody commits a sin against you and there's this deep desire in you to say, I want them to feel what I feel. I want them to pay for what they did. Particularly if they knowingly did it, there's this thing in us that says, if I, if I just am rude enough to them, if I just shame them enough, if I just tell enough people, if I, if I act in this specific way, that will enact justice. But remember the definition of forgiveness we looked at a couple weeks ago. Dr. Gary Brashears defined forgiveness this way. Forgiveness is my personal act to release the one who sinned against me from my personal right to collect on the moral debt for his offense, giving it over to God for his justice and mercy. Do you see that the release is not to a lack of justice? The release is to perfect justice. So when we offer the altruistic gift of forgiveness, what we're saying is, I will not enact justice on you because God is perfect in his justice. He can handle this. In fact, it is not at all a stretch, follow the logic, to say that offering the gift of forgiveness to someone is actually a beautiful act of worship. Because when we offer forgiveness, what we're saying to God is, you are good, you are loving, you are just, you can handle this. I am created 
I am your child. I will not do it perfectly. I give it to you because you will. It's an act of worship. We forgive and we recognize who God is and allow him to enact justice. So we give the altruistic gift of forgiveness. Then we move to committing publicly to forgive. Now this uh, feels a little bit weird at first. Um, I'm not saying grab a microphone and come up and start forgiving people publicly, although we would not forget that Sunday. It would really be interesting. So if you want a microphone, there's one right up there. Um, What I'm saying is there's this moment that happens after we've forgiven someone where we begin to doubt that forgiveness. So let's go back to poor Jeff. I've, I've now com- I've committed to forgive Jeff, right? I, I've made that decision. But then a week or two or six later, I'm walking down the, the grocery store aisle in Giant. I come around the corner, and there's Jeff right in front of me. And what happens in me? Right? Like there's this thing that, that comes up inside of me. And it's, it's reflexive, and you can't do anything about it. But this thing comes up, and at that point, I'm like, I thought I forgave him. But I clearly didn't. What? Yeah, well, afterward, we'll hug later. Yeah, we'll hug later. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor Jeff. So I see him and I have this immediate, this like visceral reaction. And I immediately think, but I thought I forgave him. And if there's never been a public act of forgiveness, I'm left in this place where I'm saying, did I or didn't I? But remember, we said forgiveness isn't an emotion. It's a decision. And so if, if I've walked through, so let's say Bill and I have been walking through that process. Bill's been like uh, working with me as I work to try to forgive Jeff. And I finally forgive Jeff. And so I call Bill up. I just like run around the corner and giant, you know, call, call Bill. Hey, um, didn't, didn't I forgive Jeff? Oh yeah, man, you totally forgave Jeff. I remember when that happened. I'm not talking like Bill. Bill would have said, yes, you forgave Jeff or something like that, <laughs> whatever. And, and then I'd hang up and I'd go back and give Jeff a hug af- afterwards. So, because I would, be, I would have that stake in the ground. Publicly committing to forgive is a stake in the ground moment where I say, I, I made a decision of the will to forgive and I want to remember it. So maybe that's telling someone else about it, walking through the process with someone. For some people, it's as silly as it sounds, printing out a certificate and writing it out. Like, I release this person of this offense on this day, signed by me. For some people, it's a, it's a memorial of some kind. People like take rocks and write the offense on those rocks and place them at the foot of the cross in, in remembrance. That's some kind of a memorial. You write things down and burn them. Whatever it is, something that is a, a, a stake in the ground kind of moment that you can say, I know I did that. And you do that because that cycle will continually come back. And in that process of cycling, you, you want to have your emotions catch up with your decision. Jesus says uh, a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, those, those two things are inextricable. Like, if that person is truly your enemy, you cannot generate love for them on your own. You're just not going to be able to do it. If they're really your enemy, you can't just like, mm, I love them now. It doesn't work that way. Like, but praying for those people who persecute you will begin to change your heart so that you're able to love down the line. As we pray for people, that's part of the process of committing to forgive or committing publicly to forgive. And then finally, last step is holding on to forgiveness. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, forgiveness is not a one-time thing, but it's a 
often repeated cycle that comes back around and back around and back around. This holding on to forgiveness thing is allowing the emotion to catch up with the decision so that I'm not fixating on vengeance, but I'm coming back to trusting God. I'm constantly coming back to trusting God. There are times where forgiveness will need to happen again and again, but there are more times where the remembrance of forgiveness needs to happen again and again. You just need to come back and say, no, this is true. I know this is true. Regardless of what I feel, this is true. And then slowly your emotions begin to catch up. So you recall the hurt, empathize, offer the altruistic gift of forgiveness, commit publicly to forgive, and then hold on to forgiveness. I lay those things out not to say there's an easy five-step process, but to say if forgiveness is as central to Jesus as he taught it to be, we better have a plan. And I'm not saying this is the only one, but this is a plan that we can begin to walk through. We need to have a direction. And so I want to invite you this week to practice. Again, this is not a teaching series in the traditional way. A couple weeks from now, we'll start a new teaching series. That's going to be really fun. But for now, the goal is to do the work of practice. And so in the practice guide this week, there are exercises to walk through that parallel this uh, five-step process. And I want to invite you to step into it, to work through it in community, individually before the Lord, with your journal, with other people that are trusted people that you can walk with, and begin that process uh, of maybe starting with something really small. The, The dinner table conversation is an easy one, working to those larger things. But uh, as we do that, and as I invite you into that, I want to acknowledge the fact that for some, there's, a, there's another level underneath that where God has to create in us the willingness to step into this process. And so if you're sitting here today and you're saying, that's all well and good, but I am not interested. Like, I, I know that person who hurt me and I do not want to step into it. I would encourage you, whether it's right now and we'll make that available to you in just a moment, or down the line, to find somebody to begin to pray with you with intentionality that God would give you the heart to step into forgiveness. And I know he will because Jesus taught us that unforgiveness would be a barrier to our relationship with him. And he wants to be in relationship with you. And so as we begin to ask him, he will give us the grace to start the process of forgiving others. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, and I know some of your situations, this is really hard, but it's so necessary, and I believe so foundational, not just for our interpersonal relationships, but that we would be a community of grace in the world around us, that we would love people well, requires that we forgive. And so I'm gonna invite you to respond, and that may simply be by committing to walking through the process this week. But if you're at a place where you know that there's something you need to pray through, there's a few of us that would love to pray with you. We'll just be on the outsides of the room. And as we're, as we're singing and responding, if you feel like you need somebody to pray with you, uh, we would love to be able to do that. So just come to one of us and we would love to do that. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I'm just going to pray over us as we respond.